thank you for your donation to Corbono, a nonprofit organization dedicated to the study of Scripture according to the mind of the Catholic Church. If you like this talk, we invite you to share our website, www.corbono.com, with others so that together we may participate in the evangelization of the third millennium. Our speaker, Najim Awad, lives in San Diego, California with his wife and seven children and has been studying and teaching scripture since 1995. Najib believes the Catholic Church holds and teaches the fullness of truth, and with his tremendous zeal and insight, he is able to communicate that raw truth without sugarcoating the teachings of the Catholic Church. He also believes that our job is not to change the truth, but to communicate it clearly and directly to others. And now, here's Najib. Welcome to this uh, Bible study on the book of Genesis. We have so far completed the first three days. We are now in chapter 1, starting at verse 14, and God willing, we will be able today to go through the fourth, fifth, and sixth day up to the creation of man. We will cover the creation of man in our next Bible study next week. So, why don't we begin by reading from chapter 1 with verse 14. Recall that um, last week we've ended with verse 13. So, let's just uh, uh, go back and look at this a little bit uh, so that uh, we can uh, re- remind ourselves of the context in which we were studying this. Uh, actually, why don't we read back from, chap- from verse 9. And God said, verse 9, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place, and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together he called seas. And God saw that it was good. And God said, Let the earth put forth vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind upon the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit, in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening, and there was morning a third day. So we see that in that third day, we saw actually last week, and in the third day, the focus is on the gathering of the waters away from the land, and then the the coming forth of vegetation. And we talked about the relationship uh, between these types of images here and the Babylonian uh, mythology, and we saw how effectively the book of Gen- Gen- Genesis is demythologizing, mythologizing, it's effectively taking mythology out, uh, mouthful, uh, from nature. And uh, the, the, the text here reads uh, uh, in a very natural uh, style, where these uh, things of nature, water, mountains, plants, etc., have no strength of their own. They simply are the creation of God. And we, we already notice how um, revolutionary this is in the ancient world to have a text that truly takes out any uh, animist-type uh, um, inclination out of the view of nature. And we're going to see how that this is actually con, uh, continuing on today. So why don't we begin reading with verse 14. 
And God said, Let there be lights in the firmament of the heavens to separate the day from the night, and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. And let them be lights in the firmament of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night. He made the stars also. And God set them in the firmament of the heavens to give light upon the earth, to rule over the day and over the night, and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening, and there was morning a fourth day. Verse 14 presents us with a seeming difficulty. Namely, the creation of the 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 lights in the firmament, meaning the stars, the sun, and the moon, are presented to us after the creation of earth, and after the creation of the vegetation, and the separation of the water from the earth. Obviously, from a scientific standpoint, we know that this is not so. The sun, the moon, the stars are far older than the earth could be, that is, following the standard cosmological model. So, why is it then that the, the creation of these stars, these luminaries, are, is presented after the creation of the vegetation and the separation of water and uh, the earth? There is a very important reason that explains the logic of the text, but it isn't, um, it's not found in the scientific quarters. Let's recall one more time that one of the purpose, not the most important purpose, but effectively one of the purpose of the book of Revelation is this ongoing conversation with the culture where the Jews find themselves present in Babylon. What is the primary god of Babylon? Once we ask this question, we can start to see why this text here makes sense. Um, the primary god, well, one of the primary god actually in Babylon is the god known as uh, Shamash or Shamus or Shamish, and that is indeed the god sun. So, to the Babylonians, the sun is a god of extreme importance. Likewise, the stars are thought to influence the lives of men. Therefore, both the sun and the stars, according to the Babylonian mythology, and not just the Babylonian mythology, many other ones as well. Egyptians, for instance, come, Egyptian mythology comes to mind in this context as well as uh, the um, Incas um, and the Mayans, etc., where they had sun worship. These objects ended up uh, playing a very important role in the understanding of the world for these cultures and were thought to be far greater and far more important than men. Now notice what the text does here. It speaks of the creation of these things after the creation of the vegetation. This tells us immediately two things. Number one, the purpose of the text is clearly not, not scientific. I do not say non-scientific as, uh, as though the text is trying to contradict science. It really doesn't. 
I mean not scientific. In other words, the focus is not to try to give us a scientific account of the creation of the world. That is not the focus of the text. Really, the focus of the text, therefore, is to present us with a view that says that all the objects in nature, on earth, and in the cosmos, are creatures, are creatures. They have been created, and they have no intrinsic strength of their own. They, there are no deities out there, there are no strange forces that we should be afraid of or that we should worship. All of this is the work of the Lord, and the Lord alone is God. That is the most profound message to be found in the text of Genesis. And it's, we're going to see this message unfold throughout all the chapters. In this specific instance, the intent here was to purposefully degrade the importance given to the sun, the moon, and the stars. As I said earlier, among the Babylonians, the sun was known as Shamash. It had a name. Well, in this text, it is not even mentioned by name. If you notice, let's go back and read more carefully. It says, um, And God made the two great lights. Verse 16. The two great lights. The greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night. It doesn't even call them by their names, sun and moon. So, you could clearly see here the polemic, the polemical language that is, or if you want the, um, look at it differently or positively, um, the apologetical language, as you know, uh, apologia is not to, to apologize, but rather to make a defense of the faith. There is definitely that element that is present, and we are going to also encounter it very, very strongly Later, when we cover chapter 4, the ends of the chapter 4, we talk about the Canaanite civilization, we will see the same language occur there as well. Here, it is intended to diminish the importance given to the sun, to the moon, and the stars. As a matter of fact, their presence in the firmament is functional. The role is very clearly set. The Lord created them so that what? So that let them, let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. Notice the four things. Signs, seasons, days and years in this order. Again, a very peculiar order. Uh, it doesn't say for years, for seasons, for, you know, for days, um, in this order, in a sort of chronological order. No, it seemed to be interspersed. First signs, then seasons, then days, then years. Why that order? What does it refer to? Well, um, we've already covered the, uh, in, in, the, in, the, uh, in a number of lectures, particularly found on Corbono uh, in the Foundation Library, the signs and symbols in Scripture, as well as the... Um, Feasts of the Temple, in which we talk also about the seasons. The, uh, what we see, when we, whenever Scripture speaks of signs, it is effectively uh, speaking about the uh, signs that God gives before He takes action. 
So we are to watch for the signs of the times, as the Lord himself tells us we need to do. And so that's why you see the signs here mentioned first. The purpose of those things are for signs, that uh, they are effectively symbolizing the language that God will use to speak to us. So remember that uh, the birth of Jesus, there was a star that was a sign, a sign given that something was to happen, a star foretold by Balaam the prophet. And, um, uh, and in the book of Revelation, obviously, we hear often about the sun not giving its light and the moon uh, turning to blood and the stars falling, meaning that these objects are now giving an, a sign of an impeding doom. Well, this is symbolic language, and we've seen in one other uh, series on the prophets, particularly the prophet Isaiah, and when this language is used, it is really used in reference to this passage here, because what, the, what it's saying is that the order of nature has been disrupted. Uh, particularly, this in, indicates that the time of an empire is up, because the way empires measure time was precisely using these elements in the firmament. And so when these things are disrupted, the clock is broken to indicate that the empire has come to an end. So that's the meaning of the signs here. And then the next element that we see in this particular verse is seasons. So they are to indicate, not regulate, indicate seasons. This is very important. Therefore, seasons. So only God truly regulates seasons through his action and care for us. But these objects serve as the intermediary through which this regulation comes about. In, um, in the book of Leviticus and Deuteronomy, in chapter 26 of the book of um, uh, Leviticus and 28 of Deuteronomy, um, might, I might have them reversed right now, I don't have them before me. But in those two chapters, the Lord speaks of the blessings and the curses that would befall Israel, or would come upon Israel, should Israel either follow the covenant or move away from it. And one of the things he speaks about explicitly is to give us rain in its seasons. In other words, he will be the one to regulate the seasons appropriately. And that would be the means that he would use, is through these stars and suns and moon. And then for days, days why days before years? Which days? It was obviously days of worship. Right. So, for instance, the um, the Paschal uh, sacrifice was always um, tied to the uh, lunar cycle. Uh, actually, uh, that was the case um, uh, during the presence of our Lord on Earth. But before that, uh, when Moses was in the desert, it is thought to have been taught, tied to the uh, solar cycle. So, we use these objects in the firmament to help us determine the days of the feasts. So again, their first and foremost purpose, therefore, is, in this context, liturgical. It, it, they help us to regulate, to know when to celebrate certain liturgies. That's why they have been given us. And then the last thing for years, the measurement of time, the passing of time. That is the least important element, the least important function these objects have. And uh, typically in our society today, that is the only function we have retained, pretty much, in, in the society we live in. But hopefully you start to understand why these 
the creation of the firmaments were relegated to the fourth day, namely because we wanted to, the, the, the narrator wanted to set them after the vegetation, the weakest of the creation in a sense, to show them that they're even weaker from the point of view of influence on man, and that they had a very specific functional role to play, and that's why the text is presented here in this order. The, now, the other important functional aspect, obviously, which is very crucial to us and to life, is to give light. And so the language to rule over the day and over the night and to separate the light from the darkness is a language that indicates that the, uh, the role of the, the, the sun and the moon is really set within a framework, within a uh, sandbox, if you will, that God has established. The sun cannot rule over the night, nor can the moon rule over the day. They don't have powers of their own to decide when they're going to shine and how they're going to shine. The whole idea, therefore, again, is one of restriction, one of containment, one of service. These objects as are, are of service to us, and we ought not, therefore, worship them contrary to what the Babylonians would be doing. Um, again, uh, to shine upon the earth, therefore, uh, the purpose of the sun and the moon is to serve, as I said, uh, the need of the earth. They're the servants of the earth, not the other way around. So, uh, from a liturgical standpoint, from a spiritual standpoint, the earth is far more important than the sun and the moon. And in, in that sense... Uh, one might think of the earth as a, sort of the spiritual center um, of, uh, of the, well, maybe not the cosmos, but at least of the world, insofar as our faith goes, because it is where man lives. If man were to spread across the cosmos and live elsewhere, then the same idea would apply to whatever, whichever abode man chooses to live on. For, because at the end of the day, earth is important because man lives on it, not the other way around. Uh, one significant aspect here is that no particular role is assigned to the stars, which are actually not further discussed. They're mentioned here and nothing else is said. This silence effectively is a repudiation of astrology. Uh, anyone who's reading his, um, you know, uh, he's reading his, uh, what do you call these things again? Um, um, when you go read the newspaper to, uh, for the, to, to find out what the stars are, uh, is going to tell you, according to your sign, uh, is effectively committing a sin. It's a sin of idolatry. You don't do that because uh, the stars can't tell you anything about your life. God can. And here we have a, a tacit repudiation of astrology or any attempt to actually follow astrology. In Jeremiah chapter 10, verse 2, we read, Thus says the Lord, Do not learn to go to the way of the nations. And do not be dismayed by the portents in the sky. Let the nations be dismayed by them. The whole intent here is that you ought to know better. You ought to know more. God is your only God and these objects have no power of themselves. So do not do what the nations do. Origen points out that, and I quote, Just as the sun and the moon are said to be the great lights in the firmament of heaven, so also are Christ and the church in us. But since God also placed stars in the firmament, let us see what are also stars in us, that is, in the heaven of our heart. 
Moses is a star in us, which shines and enlightens us by his acts. And so Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, David, Daniel, and all to whom the Holy Scriptures testify that they pleased God. So effectively what this is suggesting in the anagogical reading is that the sun obviously is Christ, the moon typically exemplifies Our Lady and the Church, and the stars are the saints and the angel. St. Ambrose, I mean, there is a limit to this because obviously Christ and, the church, and, and Our Lady and the Church and the saints are not there to serve us as, in, as, as servants, but really to, offer, to, to, to help us in our solicitude and love. Uh, so we, we have to exercise care when we apply these images. Now, St. Ambrose, Ambrose tells us that the bramble preceded the sun, the blade of grass is older than the moon, Therefore, do not believe that object to be a God to which the gifts of God are seen to be preferred. And that essentially summarizes the point I was making earlier. So you can see that the Father saw it right. It is not a new teaching I'm coming up with. This has been clearly seen by the Fathers that indeed the reason why the firmaments were, the creation of the firmaments were placed in the fourth day was to put them beneath that of the bramble or the grass. And St. John Damascan states that the light was placed in the luminaries so that they may not remain idle. For the luminary is not the light itself, but simply its receptacle. So his view of the luminary was really as a container of the light, and it was up to that luminary to shed the light, to do something. And his point is, obviously, that when God places his light in us, we ought not to remain idle, but rather we must shed that light out. Um... So, we, we basically covered now the fourth day and its meaning. So, let us then move over, move, move to, towards uh, uh, the fifth day. Verse 20. And God said, Let the waters bring forth swarms of living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth, across the firmament of the heavens. 21. So God created the great sea monsters and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind and God saw that it was good. And God blessed them saying, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters and the seas and let birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning a fifth day. So, in the fifth day, we see now the creation of birds and fish, if I were to summarize it, meaning creatures of the air and creatures of the sea. And that's important. Um, before we get there, we should notice that neither water nor air, for that matter, possesses inherent, independent, generative powers as it does in the pagan mythologies. In other words, life is not a feature or a function of water alone. Rather, God uses water, and he could use anything else for that matter, to bring forth life. It produces marine life only, water produces marine life only in response to the divine command. Now, living creature... Uh, as we read, let the waters bring forth swarms of living creature. Uh, living creature 
Nefesh Haya means literally animate life, that which embodies the breath of life. Uh, so it, it, uh, it's not specifying what kind of creature it is, but the reason why it mentions it as being li- living creatures or creatures with a breath in them is to contrast them to the, um, uh, to the plants. Why? Because plant life does not have an animate life, a nefesh haya in them. Plant life are not thought to breathe the way creatures breathe. And that is the distinction being made here. In verse 21, God created, when we say, so God created the great sea monsters, this is the first time we see the word, uh, the verb, uh, the, the, the use of the verb bara, which means to create. And in any case, a new stage when it comes to animate life. God did not say, that's what we're trying to point out to here. In, in verse 20, God said, let the waters bring forth, and they did. But in verse 21, God created the great sea monsters. Why is it that when we get to the great sea monsters, language switches over and speaks of God creating? Again, we go back to the same polemical issue at hand. Why? Because the great sea monsters were worshipped. So the dragon, for instance, and the great serpent, and the great shark, Yem, I mean the great serpent, Yem, which is considered to be, in the Babylonian mythology, a companion of um, uh, the, uh, the god um, uh, Murdoch, who effectively created the world. So the reason why the indication here is uncreated is to specify that it wasn't um, that these monsters, these big animals, were not present in the waters by themselves, nor were they brought by the waters sort of accidentally, but they are the specific, uh, cre- the, the, the result of the sp- a specific creative act on God's part. God willed to create these monsters. So it again takes away any notion that these animals should or ought to be worshipped. They are, along the fish and the birds, creatures of God. Uh, So that's essentially why we see this verb being used here. Now, one one way to look at this whole uh, passage is that birds fly above the earth, fish swim, swim below the water. Therefore, the creative act of God covers not only the waters below, but also the waters above. Remember the separation of the waters from the waters. So the waters in the sky, when it rains, from the waters in the sea. And so all that lives and in the waters beneath and in the waters below, I mean above, is the direct result of God's creative act. And hence, none of that ought to be... Uh, worshipped. At the same time, what is being indicated here is the exuberant variety of creatures that come about, not so much the origin of their species. Again, the text is not interested in providing us with a scientific account of the creation of the world. It's really stating that God, in His creative act, uses, um, uh, you know, essentially wills for all these creatures in their variety to come about. Uh, simply because it pleases him to do so. And God blessed all these creatures with fertility. The plants were not so blessed, if you notice. Uh, there, were, there was no blessing for the plants to multiply. 
the reason, uh, again, has nothing to do with uh, the uh, scientific understanding of the vegetative order or the, order or the understanding of plants versus understanding of animal. It has everything to do with the curse that is to come. It, the text seems to indicate somehow that God foresaw what was to happen and that he was going to curse the earth later when, Abraham, when um, Adam was going to sin against him. And because of that, God withheld this blessing. So, again, keep in mind that the purpose of the text is not so much to tell us about the scientific order of things, rather to tell us what God is doing and is also conversation, an ongoing conversation with the Babylonian culture uh, that, in which the Jews found themselves living during the exile. The plants, as I said, were not blessed. The procreation of animate, uh, animate creatures, however, requires individual sexual activity, mating. This capacity for sexual reproduction is regarded as a divine blessing. So from the very beginning, Scripture looked at the sexual activity as a blessing from God. And it is through this blessing that God extends His gift to the world. That is something that's very important for us to understand, because all too often we do tend to think of sexuality more as an activity separate from the spiritual realm, as if prayer and sexuality are two separate things. But it is not so, because truly uh, sexuality is the prayer of the body. It is a way in which the grace and the blessing of God is expressed bodily. And we see it in here that uh, the blessing for fertility is obviously blessing of the sexual activity. St. Basil the Great views the living creatures in the sea as an adornment of the sea. So he doesn't see them as uh, monsters or as things to be feared. He looks at them more as an adornment, as something to render the sea more beautiful. Uh, so it's a very positive outlook on the sea, which is um, in contrast to the way the ancients viewed the sea in a continuous way as uh, a source of chaos. He sees them as an adornment. Quote, The earth has received its ornamentation from its plants. The heavens had received the flowers of stars and had been adorned with two great lights, as if with the radiance of twin eyes. It remained for the waters too to be given their proper ornamentation. And Origen likens the fish and the birds to evil and good thoughts that proceed from our heart, that there might be distinction of the good thoughts from the evil ones through the grace of God in our heart. So again, Origen tends to always take the literal meaning and is able to, to look at the text in either a moral or an anagogical and logical fashion. Here, obviously, it's the moral reading. So what he's saying, basically, is that if you look at the, sea, at the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky as creatures uh, moving in two separate waters, what he's saying is that the fish in the sea, the sea beneath us, represents the evil thoughts, whereas the birds in the sky, the sky above us, represent the good thoughts, and it is our job to continuously filter the good from the bad. So that brings another a very important point, and that is when we have a thought that comes about to us suddenly, we must 
uh, exercise caution and prudence, and we have to have the wisdom to discern its origin, not necessarily accepting it immediately or instinctively because it came to us. We have to have this sort of uh, separation between the fish of the sea, if you will, and the birds of the sky. That's the uh, point he's trying to make. Now let's go back a little bit uh, to the great sea monsters. In the Babylonian hymn to the sun god Shamash, the sun god is said to receive praises and reverence even from the worst groups. Included in this list are the fearsome monsters of the sea. The hymn thus suggests that there is a total submission of all creatures to Shamash, just as the Genesis creation texts shows all creatures created by and therefore submitted to Yahweh. So, there, this is again a response to the sort of a, a cult of um, the God-Son that you find in the Babylonian uh, context. There is another myth among the Babylonian called the Labu myth that records the creation of the sea viper whose length was 60 leagues. So, they see uh, these monsters as obviously opposed to human life. And this specification expresses an unspoken anti-pagan polemic. I already told you that. The fact that in this text, just as earlier, we saw that the moon and the sun were not called by name. They were just called the great light and the small light. That was the intent to demystify them, to uh, degrade them to natural objects. Likewise, the great um, sea monsters are not named. They don't have names. Why? Because the intent here is to indicate they are just like the fish. Um, so, Hebrew, in, it is interesting that in the Hebrew Tanim appears in Canaanite myths from Ugarit together with Leviathan as the name of the primeval dragon god who assisted Yam in an elemental battle against Baal, the god of fertility. Uh, so, earlier I spoke of Yem in connection with Marduk, but I got a little bit mixed up. It has nothing to do with Marduk in this context. It has to do with uh, Leviathan or Tanin, same word, different languages, to mean dragon. And both of them fought against Baal, who was uh, representing, therefore, the god of fertility. And fragments of this myth in a transformed Israelite version surface in several biblical poetic texts, so Psalms 104.26, for instance, where the Leviathan waits for God to provide him his food. So you see, in that song, they take the word Leviathan from the ambient culture, but then turns its meaning upside down. It is no longer a god of the sea. It's not a sentient being able to do decision on his own. He's just a dumb animal living in the sea. And I use the word dumb here in its, in its principal meaning, meaning devoid of intelligence. Uh, and uh, it also waits on God for God to provide him with his food. And likewise, we find in Psalm 148, verse 7 through 12, that the monsters are permitted to head up the praise parade to Yahweh, uh, in which the force of evil in this world are figuratively identified with Tanim. So the idea is that in that psalm, these creatures in the sea are also praising Yahweh, they're singing his praises, as all natures would do that. Uh, so by emphasizing that God created the great sea monsters late in the cosmogonic order, cosmogonic order, the narrative at once strips them of divinity. So you, you can see the entire structure of the, uh, the first chapter of Genesis is a stripping away of nature from any supernatural element 
and essentially recovering the rational aspect of nature that was lost in the mythology. That is the fundamental uh, principle that we see here repeated over and over again. All right, let's now move to day six. And God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, cattle and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kind. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds, and the cattle according to their kinds, and everything according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Now, we've covered the air, the sky, first with all the firmaments, then we've covered the sea with all the fish, and now we move over to the, to the land. And again, the order here is not necessarily a purely scientific order, even though it harmonizes well with... Um, account that we have from the creation of the world scientifically. Now, notice the difference. Let the earth bring forth. This was not said of uh, the, uh, the water uh, alone. Even though we, we read that God said, let the water bring forth swarms of creatures, but there was also a creative act on God's part. Whereas in the case of the earth... The only thing that is said is that the earth would bring forth. The earth differs from the dangerous regions of the waters and of the seas and the areas along the dome of heaven. The earth means life for humans. It is productive. And notice that the execution at the end of verse 24 is reversed. So, we read here, um, Let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, cattle and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kind. Right? And it was so. And this reversal, according to its kind showing up after earth, is done so as to juxtapose Adama, earth, to Adam, man. And that's sort of an important element that we're going to see also as soon as we start studying the creation of man. Now, three categories of land, animals, are summed up according to their nature. Cattle, domesticated animals, and the crawling creatures. So, we see that it says cattle, creeping things, and beasts of the earth. So, cattle are the domesticated animals. Creeping things are things that are really, that essentially creeps on the earth, and then the rest. Uh, so, what we see here is um, an intent, it's a, sort of an umbrella statement. It's saying that all, all the um, creatures on earth were effectively brought forth by God. None of them escapes His creative act. Uh, the creeping things is a general term for creatures whose bodies appear to move close to the ground. And here it seems to encompass reptiles, creeping insects, and very small animals. What is missing here? Obviously what is missing is the blessing. There's no blessing. And it's striking. So, one reason that is m maybe advanced is that... Um, the natural habitat of fish and fowl allows for their proliferation without encroaching adversely upon man's environment. However, the proliferation of animals, especially the wild variety, constitutes a menace. And this idea is, uh, exp is expressed in Exodus chapter 23, verse 29, as well as Leviticus 26, 22. That would be one reason. But there, are, there is maybe a more important reason. And that, again, has to do with the polemic that the Jews 
were having with the culture around them. Many, many of the gods took on animal form. And by not uh, issuing a blessing here, the intent is to indicate to the Jews that many of these animals were effectively forbidden. They were not to eat from them, they were not to touch them, they were not to do anything with them, and certainly not worship them. As you know, had happened during the uh, Exodus. So the absence of blessing, as I said, is striking, and uh, as I explained earlier, that could be the reason why the, uh, the, the animals were not blessed to begin with. There is another important aspect we have to understand, and that is uh, these animals which are given to man are primarily given to man for a sacrificial purpose, so that through them he may offer sacrifice to God in the appropriate way, uh, as we saw in the, um, in, the lit- in the liturgy of the Old Testament. Not that God particularly likes sacrifices, but it is man who needs that until the coming of Christ, where the Eucharistic sacrifice would replace all these uh, ineffective sacrifices, if you will. And uh, that also may be a reason why uh, the blessing was missing here. Now, St. Basil the Great wrote, Let us glorify the master craftsman for all that has been done wisely and skillfully, and from the beauty of the visible things let us form an idea of him who is more than beautiful. And from the greatness of these perceptible and circumscribed bodies, let us conceive of him who is infinite and immense, and who surpasses all understanding in the plenitude of his power. For even if we are ignorant of things made, yet at least that which, is ge- which in general comes under our observation is so wonderful that even the most acute mind is shown to be at a loss as regards the least of the thing in the world either in the ability to explain it worthily or to render due praise to the Creator, to whom be all glory, honor, and power forever. And that particular uh, hymn of praise on Saint Basil's, uh, from St. Basil is here to remind us that the orderly creation, the order reflected in creation, is the order of the Creator, and it is a reflection of his power. And so the fundamental purpose of nature, first, first obviously, is to clothe us and feed us and prov- provide us with an environment in which we live, not on a natural level, but on a supernatural level. Its first and foremost purpose is to help us form an idea of the qualities of the Creator and open our minds and hearts to receive His Word. So, so that we can speak of the liturgy of nature when we look at all that has been created in the order in which it was created and the beauty that we see there. Our hearts then are elevated to God in a hymn of praise, just as we heard from St. Basil. And that is very important. Um, it's something that we take for granted, I suppose, because we do not live in a pagan uh, environment, I mean by this an environment in which all these elements have been infused with uh, mystical, magical, supernatural powers. If the sun, the moon, the stars, if the trees, if the rocks, if the beasts were infused with these powers, we would not be 
sitting there appreciating them. We would be fearing them or trying to control them. Effectively, mythology uh, causes man to enter into enmity with creation, whereas the scriptural text, the, 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 account, the creative account in the book of Genesis and scripture allows us to recover a peaceful um, relationship with nature. Uh, one where man is supposed to be a good steward, to responsibly uh, take uh, charge of the nature that he was given and be able to cultivate it for the purpose of man. Obviously, we fall short from this, uh, from this tall order. Nevertheless, it is possible, it is conceivable to speak of it in this fashion and to speak of nature scientifically precisely because we were given this text of Genesis that free, uh, free us frees us from uh, these, um, uh, these uh, mythologies and this, uh, uh, you know, essentially a waste of time, if you will, where we conceive of powers that really do not exist in nature. And, and we should, uh, for that, praise God and reflect really on the power of reason, the reason that He has given us and through which we come to know Him. Um, and as St. Thomas Aquinas tells us, at the end of the day, to believe in God is to know Him, and we cannot know Him other than through our reason, and reason obviously illuminated by faith. And those are the two most important faculties, faith being the most important faculty we have, hope, charity, but reason is that natural faculty that allows us and enables us to be able to come to know God. And in a sense, the book of, the book of Genesis and Scripture is a reasonable book. It is a book that really speaks to the heart of the matter in a balanced, reasoned way, neither falling in the, in, in the excess of mythology nor falling in the excess of um, you know, materialistic uh, scientific view. And that is why this text is worth our study and our consideration and our prayer. So um, tonight as we go into our homes and as we... Uh, spend time in prayer. Let us give glory to God. Let us praise Him for His creation. And let us thank Him for all that He has done for us, for all the good things He has given us. And let us also be mindful that at the end of the day, it is He who provides us with what we need. We are not the ones who can make that up. He gives us what we need. And I will leave you with this one saying of St. Augustine, O man, what have you got that you have not been given? Indeed, praise be to God. We hope you've enjoyed this talk from Carbono. For more information about this and other talks, please visit our website at www.carbono.com. Thank you and God bless you.